Carlos Hernandez is kind of what you imagine when you think of a tough guy. Uh, I'm a 20-year Marine veteran, so I retired uh, about four years ago, uh, right before the pandemic hit. Carlos settled in San Antonio, he, his wife Ashley, and their four children and their dog, and a fifth child was born after the pandemic started, and then, surprise, a sixth was on the way. This was back before vaccines were recommended for pregnant women, and Ashley was not vaccinated. So the initially it was on Friday. It was a Friday before Father's Day that when she started really having a hard time. So we took her to um, took her to the doctor, and they checked her out, and that's when she actually got the diagnosis that she was positive for COVID. But her symptoms were not severe enough from you know our understanding, so they sent her home. Um, we brought her home. They said, hey, she just needs rest, plenty of fluids. So... They went home. Ashley quarantined upstairs while Carlos wrangled the Fab Five, ages seven, six, four, three, and one, and the dog downstairs. And over the next two days, Ashley's condition got worse. Her fatigue evolved into shortness of breath. She just she couldn't seem to catch it. And then her upset stomach became nausea, then vomiting. When I went up and checked on her first thing in the morning, Monday morning, she was sitting in a chair upstairs and she was having a hard time breathing. At that point, I was like, yeah, that's, that's not, we're not waiting anymore. So I grabbed all the kids, just put them all in the car. I came back upstairs, helped her down the stairs. She was too weak to come down on her own, put her in the car, went to, the, uh, to Bamsey. And then uh, I ran in, grabbed the wheelchair, put her in the wheelchair. And then I took her inside. And I, I, you know, at that point, I was like, I, I need to leave you here because I've got the babies in the car. I'm going to go park the car. I'll be right back. By the time I came back, they had already taken her inside. Carlos, standing in a lobby at Brook Army Medical Center in San Antonio, surrounded by his young children, his desperately ill, very pregnant wife, already whisked away for emergency care. So that was the last time that I saw her as I was kind of leaving her, which, I mean, that played in my mind repeatedly. Um, if that was the last time that I was going to see my wife was me just kind of, in my mind, just like abandoning her, abandoning her there for somebody else. This retired Marine had survived combat. He says this was far more difficult. As strange as it may sound, you, you do feel a sense of control, even when you're in a combat situation. Um, as a Marine, you're still drawn some form of experience, some form of training, and you have people to back you up. You have an entire platoon or squad or company. This was nothing like that. Ashley's condition cratered in the hospital. The virus was ravaging her lungs. She needed low flow, then high flow oxygen, then she needed a ventilator to breathe. She was quickly sedated and intubated. That was Monday. By Wednesday, doctors were talking about putting Ashley on a heart-lung bypass machine called ECMO, and delivering the baby by C-section. Ashley's doctor called Carlos to prepare him for that possibility. And it was close to probably about midnight. Probably about midnight. Uh, the kids were finally asleep. I was exhausted. And I came downstairs, right where the little place area is at right there. And I just, I honestly just fell on my knees and I started praying. And something, like something in my mind just kept telling me that I was praying wrong. And which made no sense. Like, how am I praying wrong? Um, but just something was telling me I was praying wrong because I was asking, I was asking God to please save her. And then I, something just kind of, 
embraced me, came over me. It's hard to explain, but I realized that if I was asking, then that's because I didn't believe it was going to happen. And so really what I had to do at that point was really accept the fact that whatever was going to happen was going to happen. I had no control over it. It was in God's hands. And all I could do is have faith that it was going to be a positive outcome. This feeling, this embrace, as he describes it, made Carlos feel calm. So I was able to deal with situations a little bit better that way. Um, When I finally got the call on Saturday that she had to go on ECMO, the only question I had for the doctors was, can you give me an hour to get there? Because I've got the kids, I need to find some place for them. And they said, unfortunately, we don't. We don't, we, don't, we don't have minutes, let alone hours right now. Ashley would deliver the baby while sedated, while a machine did her breathing for her, while two teams of specialists worked on her, and a third team set up a makeshift little neonatal intensive care unit nearby for the baby. It was the best chance either of them had. It was maybe the only chance. Carlos said, do it. From Texas Public Radio and the Texas Newsroom, this is Petri Dish. I'm Bonnie Petrie. This is a science and medicine podcast, so I'm not going to make you sit in suspense worrying and wondering if Ashley and her baby survived. That would just be mean and not at all how we do things around here. So, look at she. Who is that woman? Who is she? Oh. It's currently stranger danger. That's right. <laughs> That's Kaizen with his strong lungs and his understandable suspicion of strange women holding microphones. He's eight months old and healthy. And his mom, Ashley. Um, Ashley Savage Hernandez. Um, I'm an OT, occupational therapist, by um, education. Um, six kids. We are done. <laughs> Ashley and Kaizen are both doing very well. And this episode of Petri Dish is about how they got here. How did they survive the worst that COVID has to offer? Let's start with Ashley's doctor, Veronica Gonzalez-Brown. She is the chair of the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Brook Army Medical Center, and she specializes in high-risk obstetrics. Dr. Gonzalez-Brown says COVID has been really hard on some of her patients. We've seen everything from just mild cases, which luckily has been a good majority of our patients, um, to having patients with... uh, respiratory distress syndrome, needing to be intubated, uh, significant respiratory distress involving ECMO. We've seen some long, uh, what we call long COVID cases or prolonged COVID where they just have significant um, uh, just post-residual COVID symptoms, so just fatigue and just not going back to 100%. Um, And then unfortunately, we have had some maternal deaths because of COVID. In fact, according to a February report from the National Center for Health Statistics, the number of women in the United States who died during pregnancy or shortly after giving birth increased by 14 percent during the first year of the pandemic. Pregnancy itself is an independent risk factor for COVID. So what we learned was that if one of our pregnant patients 
was to have COVID, they were at increased risk of having more severe disease than a non-pregnant patient. And then they had an increased risk of ending up in the intensive care unit, or in this case, even requiring ECMO. Okay, ECMO. Let's dive into what that is exactly, shall we? This is what it sounds like. That hum, that. ECMO, it's uh, extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. So extracorporeal means outside the body. There's a membrane that provides oxygen to the blood. So ECMO is extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. That's Dr. Philip Mason, a medical director of Brook Army Medical Center's Adult Extracorporeal Membrane Oxygenation Program, the only adult ECMO program in the Department of Defense. He led the team that attached Ashley to the machine. So, so the way we uh, attach an ECMO machine is through two large tubes called cannulas. Uh, and those tubes go into a large blood vessel, either usually in the groin, sometimes in the neck, and they're inserted deep enough so that the end of them lies near the heart. And one of them is used to draw blood out of the body through that, that cannula. Um, it's pulled out by a pump, and then it's pumped through an artificial lung where oxygen is added and carbon dioxide is removed. And then that same pump returns the blood through that other cannula uh, to the patient's body. So ECMO basically does what lungs do, right? It adds oxygen to a person's blood and it removes carbon dioxide while giving the patient's own lungs a chance to rest. Actually, it's interesting that you use the word lungs and rest in the same sentence because we actually term what we're doing a lot of times lung rest. Many of these patients, particularly COVID patients, really need the rest. Their lungs have been through so much by the time their doctors even consider ECMO. The COVID virus just tears up that soft, spongy tissue that makes up the lungs and the ventilator, forcing air in and out and in and out, does its own damage. When we put a patient on ECMO, we generally... Uh, assess, according to our, our international guidelines, that their risk of dying is probably at least 80% before they go on to ECMO. Um, by going on ECMO, we want to decrease that risk of dying down to, you know, 30%. If we can get that down to 30%, that's a really good, uh, uh, really good improvement in their odds. And that's where they were when they called Ashley's husband, Carlos, and asked if they could put her on ECMO and deliver the baby. You know, you're, you're faced with a, a pregnant mother um, who is, has reached the point of their disease where they're really at the edge of death. And we're concerned that any time in the next few minutes or a few hours, they could have a cardiac arrest um, or the mother could die. At that point, the risk of the baby dying becomes extremely high. Are there heroic ways that maybe that baby could be rescued? Sure. Um, but that's very difficult, very risky, and not certain at all. Dr. Gonzalez-Brown said they had reached a point where they couldn't keep Ashley's blood saturated with oxygen anymore. I'd already talked to multiple ICU attendings throughout the week on if we had to go to ECMO, what we were going to do, whether we were going to deliver before ECMO, whether we would put her on ECMO, stabilize and then deliver, how long could we keep her on ECMO. There wasn't that much data on COVID and ECMO at this time. There was a lot of reports at institutions, at different institutions, but there isn't data to say, this is how you manage. We would um, put her on ECMO, stabilize her, make sure she and the baby were good, and then deliver her by C-section. And that's what they did. Yeah, so the delivery room was first of all crowded, um, second of all tense. We had a plan and 
We were all working together. We were all on board, and I thought the team was working very well together and definitely never felt like she wasn't going to get better. You know, we had the OB team there with all their surgical trays, the nurses and techs that they bring with them, uh, kind of just standing off to the side, um, you know, over in the corner of the room while my team was setting up and getting Ashley flipped onto her back because she had been prone before that, getting her positioned on her back, doing all the prep and getting ready to put her on ECMO. We had the ECMO team that had come in. They had all of their equipment around. They prepped, draped, put the patient on ECMO. If at any time we got into trouble and we thought that Ashley was gonna have a cardiac arrest or things were just not going well, they were prepared to immediately step in and deliver the baby in a cesarean section, um, even up to and including a patient in cardiac arrest. Started our C-section, and then um, because it's a COVID, we do COVID protocol, so once the baby delivered, screaming and crying like all of our babies do, we put the baby in the little bassinet that was right outside of the room, and it was wheeled to the room right next door to us, which is where our little simulation NICU was. Kaizen was born small but healthy. He was premature, but the dexamethasone, a steroid they'd been giving his mom to treat her COVID, also helped mature and strengthen his little lungs. And Ashley survived the C-section. And she was stable. Um, I think that's when I started feeling overwhelmed. I think that's when everything just kind of all came like, oh my God, we just, we just did this. They did. They did it. But Ashley was still a very sick woman. Coming up, ECMO kept Ashley Savage Hernandez alive while her baby was delivered by C-section after COVID-19 ravaged her lungs. Now what? You know, is this going to be a patient where the lungs are going to stay in that condition indefinitely? And that patient will either die or need a lung transplant. Or is this someone where those lungs, even as bad as they are, are going to turn around and heal? More when Petri Dish continues. If you're enjoying the show, here's another podcast you'll like, What the Health? I'm Julie Rovner, host of the show and chief Washington correspondent at Kaiser Health News. Every week, top reporters from outlets including The New York Times, Politico, and CNN join me to discuss the latest health and health policy news. Confused by all the health policy jargon? We'll break it down in terms that are easy to understand. KHN's What the Health. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Petri Dish. Ashley Savage Hernandez was seven months pregnant when she got COVID-19, and within a week of her positive test with mild symptoms, she had been hospitalized, sedated, put on a mechanical ventilator, then put on ECMO so doctors could deliver her baby via emergency C-section. Dr. Philip Mason leads the ECMO team at Brooke Harvey Medical Center in San Antonio, and he'll pick it up from there. We were able to get the baby delivered. That was a, a good milestone. Um, and for a period of time, she did very well with ECMO configured only to support her lungs. That's all she needed. But shortly thereafter, she developed right ventricular failure. And now we needed to uh, change the way the ECMO circuit was positioned and the way it was placed uh, so that rather than only providing lung support, it was now also supporting the right ventricle or the right side of the heart. 
there were a couple of ways this could go at this point. We know that we have seen that progress rapidly in some patients where the kidneys fail, it starts to affect the liver and other things. And I did see her heading down that path. Now, Ashley was awake. She's been under heavy sedation for most of this story. I have, um, my memories are all of things that didn't actually happen, but they coincide with what happened in reality based on what I've been told. So the last thing I remember is being in the ER, and then I know at some point they took me somewhere, and then I kind of blank, and then I'm in another room, which now I know was the ICU, Um, and then it just kind of goes in and out from there. And the last thing I remember is they said they were going to intubate me and give me ketamine, and that's when the delusions start. Delusions are not uncommon for someone in the ICU. According to research published in the Annals of Intensive Care before the pandemic, anywhere from a third to more than 80% of patients in intensive care suffer from what's called ICU delirium. ICU delirium can include hallucinations, delusions, and paranoia. At one point, I thought they were experimenting and then they were gonna kill me. And that's what I was being held for. And um, and at one point, I had restraints on because I was trying to pull my tubes. To me, I was trying to escape. Pregnancy wasn't really a part of the often terrifying world Ashley was living in while sedated and on a ventilator. You know what? I didn't even become aware of him. I didn't even think to ask about him or that I wasn't pregnant until I was more aware. So that was... I want to say the beginning of July, and he came out the 26th of June. So, yeah, he just didn't, it didn't even cross my mind about him until someone came in and, like, gave me an update about him. Like, oh, yeah, I had a baby. Where did he go? But when a patient is removed from a ventilator and placed on ECMO, Dr. Mason says they withdraw the heavy sedation that is needed to keep them safely on mechanical ventilation. He says patients can remain on ECMO for months, and you really can't live and be sedated for that long. So as Ashley emerged from her ketamine cloud and began trying to piece together what had happened to her, she says all of it became clear in an instant. I know exactly I remember exactly when we came over. The, the staff brought in um, this paper that all, had all the baby's stats on it, so weight, height, date of birth, and they had printed out some pictures of when he first came out, and they brought those in and to hang, hang them in my room. And for some reason, that was the snap of, okay, that I'm not in this experiment, I'm in the hospital, this is real, I'm, I'm safe, and the baby's real, and he's safe, and he's not in me, and he's, he's okay. But trading the delirium of sedation for the experience of being awake with lungs that aren't working, well, <laughs> that's a lot. And so the anxiety and the fear that these patients experience is very significant. Um, and so that is something we're still struggling with. Uh, What's the best way to manage that? How do we help these patients get through that? We can take care of their body and their physiology. We we have uh, plenty of technology for that. But how do we manage the other uh, emotions that they're experiencing? Some of that anxiety is associated with the machine that is keeping patients like Ashley alive, right? Even though her blood was being oxygenated by ECMO and she didn't need to breathe, 
Her nervous system was telling her she did need to breathe, causing a terrifying sensation known as air hunger. They did describe it as air hunger. I had no idea what it was. To me, it was like I, it felt like I could remember how to breathe, but my body wasn't doing it. So I was, I was really scared that my body was failing. And what if they don't know? What if I, what if it just happens and somebody leaves the room for a second, which wasn't going to happen at the time because I had a 24 hour sitter. Um, but yes, I, I struggled to breathe until somebody explained to me what it was and why I was feeling that way. And once I had it in my head, okay, this is why, and this is why this is happening. It was, it was easier. Ashley started to worry about whether she'd be on this machine forever. Images of polio patients spending decades living inside of iron lungs haunted her. Dr. Mason said he worried too, but not that Ashley would be on ECMO forever. That's not really an option. You know, is this going to be a patient where the lungs are going to stay in that condition indefinitely, and that patient will either die or need a lung transplant? Or is this someone where those lungs, even as bad as they are, are going to turn around and heal? Then? You know, we came in one morning and saw her morning chest x-ray, and it was drastically different than the day before. And what was different is there was air in the lungs. Not air throughout the lungs, but air in a few areas of the lungs. And so that doesn't necessarily mean that everything is all right, but it is an unmistakable signal that the lungs are starting to do something. They're starting to heal. They're starting to turn around. They were so excited. I was confused. I was like, I had not seen before what it looked like before. And I don't remember them doing x-rays before, so I was like, oh, what are you guys talking about? So other people would come in and, and see and take a look, or they would come on shift and look at them and come and tell me, oh, we saw them, and it's, there's more, there's more air, there's more space, less white. Um, so, yeah, they were all very excited. On July 17th, three weeks after Kaizen was born, Ashley was able to go to the NICU to meet her son in person for the first time. I was fearful to meet him because I I had all these lines and machines and he had all these lines and machines and my husband didn't go down to see him until I could see him. So we went down to <clears throat> we went down together. And I was so weak, I couldn't hold him. So they had to put a pillow and kind of put him in my arms. And I just stared at him. I couldn't believe that he was, he was so tiny. Little baby. (laughs) And he was tiny and uh, I felt like I was only there for 20 minutes. They said I was there for three hours, just, just holding him. And the nurses said that my numbers, my oxygen, my heart rate, really good when I saw him. And then from there, it just kind of improved. The improvement was steady, and in 30 days, her lungs had healed enough to be removed from ECMO. I was really scared the day before and the day that I got off. I was really scared because they said I was ready, and the machine said they were ready, and they had turned down my flows on the ECMO, and I was exchanging it on my own, according to the machines. But I was afraid that my body was just like, oh, no, we're going to let them do it, and then we're just going to give up. 
I was afraid that it was going to fail again. But they didn't. Ashley is home now with Carlos and all six of her children. She gets tired a little easier than she used to, and her voice is weak from the ventilator, but it's getting stronger. She's doing really well. Is where I take pictures. You are so good. <laughs> You're very talented. I just, I, I'm glad to just be mom. And I'm glad that they, they can call me mom and they're asking me for things. And I thought when I got home, <clears throat> it felt like such a long time to be away. In reality, it wasn't as long as it could have been. Because um, one of the nurses told me they anticipated that I was going to be there for much, much longer than I was. Um, but when I got home, I was just mom again. They were, they were still a little fearful I was going to leave, but no, just mom. That's it. That's all I need to be. So at the beginning of the show, I mentioned that Ashley had not been vaccinated against COVID-19. Kaizen was born in June of 2021, and the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists did not officially come out with a recommendation that people who are pregnant get vaccinated until the end of July. But even now, after everything she's been through, Ashley isn't what you'd call a COVID vaccine zealot. Now, she's glad that vaccines are available and that guidance from experts is now clear, but she stops short of using her experience to tell other people who are pregnant what they should do. And Ashley's not alone in her ambivalence about the COVID vaccine during pregnancy. Although the number is creeping up a little bit every week during the month of January 2022, the most recent month for which the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's VaxView has stats, only around 70% of people who are pregnant were fully vaccinated against COVID-19. Do the math. That means 30% aren't. Now, I get the ambivalence. When I was pregnant, I thought carefully about every single thing I did because, of course, I was responsible for this new, vulnerable human being. I didn't want to interfere with her development in any way. But if Ashley's story makes anything clear, it's that severe COVID while pregnant is not something you want to experience. It's something you and your baby may survive with the heroic efforts of skilled medical teams, but you also may not. The COVID vaccine reduces the risk that a person who is pregnant will get severe COVID by a lot. So if you're pregnant or thinking about having a baby, I hope you'll consider it. This episode, the 50th episode of Petri Dish, was produced by Dallas Williams and me and edited by TPR News Director Dan Katz. Music and sound design by Jacob Rosati. Petri Dish was created by Fernanda Camarena, Dan Katz, and me. And it's also a production of TPR and the Texas Newsroom, a collaboration of public radio stations across Texas and NPR. I'm Bonnie Petrie. Talk to you soon.